Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Nicola McAuliffe. Nicola's an award-winning actress and writer who played Sheila Sabatini in the 80s and 90s ITV sitcom Surgical Spirit. She's also performed in stage musicals and won an Olivier Award for Best Actress for her role in Kiss Me Kate. You might also know her from Coronation Street, and most recently she starred as Black Eyed Mog in the TV miniseries The English. Nicola's also a published novelist and playwright, and she lives in London. Well, Nicola McAuliffe, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you very much. Very comfortable it is too. Good, good. How are you? Very well, yeah, actually. I was just cleaning the floor. Right. You know, the way you do, because I've got visitors. The only reason I like having visitors is because it means I have to do the housework. Apart from that. (laughs) No reason to do it at all, I'd say. A good motivator, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Visitors Absolutely. Up. That's why I have to invite people at least twice a year. Brilliant. Um, the aim of this podcast, Nicola, is to, one of the aims of the podcast, to encourage conversations about death and dying. Because what we know through our work is if people talk about death and dying and even plan for it as much as they might be able to, then they themselves and those who are left behind might have better experiences. So I'd like to start by asking you today if you've had a significant bereavement in your life. Oh, yes, chuck a brick, you knock six out, yes. So quite a lot. Oh, yeah. I started early. I think you should. Gets you used to the idea. Is there any um is there anyone in particular we could talk about? Well, we can talk about my husband because I'm always happy to talk about my husband. Okay. Okay. And how did he die? Quickly, thank goodness. Um he had a sort of low level blood cancer called polycythemia rubrivera for fifteen years. And then that's quite unusual, but it's even more unusual to mutate into post polycythemia myelofibrosis which is not very good because the body makes blood after it's a fetus and makes blood in the long bones of the legs. And uh, unfortunately, with post-polycythemia myelofibrosis, the little holes in the bones get clogged up. So the body isn't making any blood. So the spleen and the liver go, oh, we did that when you were in a womb. We'll do it. Well, of course, you've got you know, an 11 stone bloke, not a frog on, the, on a bit of string this big. So that all gets a bit complicated. Um, the polycythemia tends to cause, is it atherosclerosis? I can never say that word. Anyway, gums up all your, your veins and your arteries. I mean, smoking doesn't help, obviously. Um, but it, your blood's so thick, it's like minestrone, and it's 
being pushed through and it's not working very well. It leaves great clumps of muck all over the place. So luckily, uh, my beloved had an ischemic bowel and peripheral arteriosclerosis, which meant he didn't have to go through the misery of what was ahead with the post-polycythemia myelofibrosis, which would have been a long and very unpleasant way to go. So his death happened in a short period of time. Yeah, we went in in the morning, and luckily his, his cancer specialist was there, um, Donal McClawnan, and uh, they said, oh, listen, your blood's a bit acid, so we just need to even it out. And I thought, I'll slip in it. We've got a lunch party on Sunday. This was Friday. Wow. Anyway, that was half past four. They realised it was not what they thought it was, which was just the acid blood. And uh, they said, well, it'd probably be ours unless you want us to operate. And then they said, ooh, uh, well, if we operate, he's got a 2% chance of getting to the operating theatre. And if he comes out of it, he'll have a stoma bag. I said, if I could wake him up and say that to him, you probably hear the row in Edinburgh. Um, I said, no, just pull the plug out and we'll, we'll go and die somewhere quietly. And he died at half past nine. In the hospital? Yes. So I'm guessing... From what you've said, you and him had conversations about dying? Oh, we, we, we laughed like a drain. On the other side of this room now, there's a sofa. And it's a white sofa, and it's called the Snowfa, because it's a white sofa, it's obvious. And he, you could not prize him off that thing. He was like a muscle or a whelk, you know, welded to a rock on this thing. And in one hand would be, you know, the television remote control on his Snowfa, you know, doing this. So I said, right, I said, when you go, I said, I'm going to put you on that snowfer. I'm going to take it down to Dulwich Park. I'm going to push it out into the middle of the pond in Dulwich Park. And I'm going to fire flaming arrows at it and give you an opelia. <laughs> and he, he, looked, and he looked very serious for a minute and he said, well, you can't. I said, why not? He said, because it's fire retardant and that would be fly tipping. So we we had a great time. We did not stop laughing. I threatened to have him stuffed, and have him as a, a on, as a hall stand. You know, hanging coats on him. Um, no, we we uh, we we had a very very good time around death. Because I, I do believe that if you don't make a friend of death, preferably, I mean, I was bereaved very early, so I got used to the idea. Um, and if you don't make a friend, then you know it's, you're really going to give yourself a hard time. I think. So it sounds like through the use of humour, but also um, that you felt comfortable having those conversations. You both felt comfortable having those conversations. When when you were a child and growing up, what messages about death do you remember getting? Oh, well, mum died when I was five and a half, so it was a pretty strong message, I'd say. Okay, yeah. So you'd had experience from a young age. Yeah, I said I was, it was very young age. So you get you you know that you know you know what the last page of the book is, mm. um, and you either choose to close the book and put it away, or you choose to keep it open. I mean, I've never had a problem with death, dying, different, and also, I've never been in the position of, of say being a parent where your child has been murdered. Now, how you can ever ever come to terms with that because not only are you bereaved and the most precious thing in your life has been taken away from you but it's been taken away by somebody so the layers I mean I always think always think there's an A to Z in terms of not easiness but um, or straightforwardness of the acceptance of 
death. So when you have a relationship like ours, where we laughed continuously for 31 years, and we always had death there with us. I mean, obviously, you know, I miss him every second of every day. People say to me, when did he die? I say yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You know, he'll die every day for me. But we had no regrets. There, was, we, there wasn't a day we didn't say we'd loved each other and fancied each other. And we were one creature. The only thing is that we traded souls. So he took my soul with him. That's all right. I'll get it back one day. And I've got to look after his now. So that's the cleanest form of death you can get. No complications. No complicated uh, or complex relationship like you'd have with a parent, for instance. The regrets, the, you know, the, oh, well, I shouldn't have said that to him or her or shouldn't have done this, you know, no layers of regret. So the purest form I've experienced, which is absolutely, you know, what a gift that is. But to get right down those layers until you come to murder, torture, all those hideous things that the person who is alive is left with continuously going round like scummy water down a plug hole about coulda, woulda, shoulda, if only. All those if onlys. Well, I had no if onlys. So, you know, I'm a lucky girl. And the trading souls and him taking yours with him. Can you say a bit more about that? Well, I tell you what it was, and I know it sounds... Yeah, remarkably shallow, I'm sure. But there's a, a writer called Taylor Sheridan who wrote Yellowstone and various other uh, series for television. One of the ones he wrote was, I think it's 1883 or 1886, and there's a character played by Sam Elliott in it who's an old man, and it's the Wild West, and he's lost his entire family, his wife, daughter, everything. And he comes across a young girl who's just lost her first love, not even consummated, but passionate first love and she wants to die and he talks her and he talks her down and he says he says the problem when you love this well is that you trade souls they are the caretaker of your soul and you're the caretaker of their soul so when they go you have to see for them speak for them touch for them feel for them and I remember sitting watching that and thinking blimey he really knows what he's talking about and he's only a comparatively young man I would say he's probably in his 40s I'm not sure He's a wonderful writer. Really nice. Um, just going back a bit to those conversations about death and dying, um, I wanted to, to ask about your husband's funeral and whether that was something that he'd planned or you'd talked about. It was phenomenal. Now, we had talked about it many times and he'd said what he wanted. But he wanted me to sing So In Love. And I said, you've got two chances. And I won't say what they are because it's a family program. Uh, but the first one was Nain, because he was Scottish. Uh, I said, there's no chance I'm going to stand up and sing So In Love at your funeral. All right? So forget that one. So he had a list of things that he wanted. Anyway, so when he went, uh, I don't like memorials. And in his business, they always have memorials. So I thought, what's the point? The person's gone. So I said, right, the memorial and funeral are going to be one. Uh, anybody, and I named a couple of people, I said, if you turn up, I will throw you out. But apart from that, everybody's welcome. Um, and uh, my neighbour over the road gave me an extra hundred chairs because he was a restaurateur. Lovely, lovely chap, Nathan. And... We had it in the local crematorium. Now, I chose that place because it was closest to his drinking hole that he went to every day with 
the grave digger, the rugby coach, you know, the bus driver, you know, the wonderful collection of Flotsam and Jetsam that he always managed to surround himself with. And I said, everybody's welcome. Now, luckily, 150 people couldn't make it because there was a storm in the West because they were hanging off the chandelier. They were ever, they were sitting on the catapult. They were sitting everywhere. On the floor, they were outside. There was an overflow outside. It was phenomenal. And it's glorious um, yeah, catafalque because instead of having that awful thing where the, 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 uh, the coffin goes behind a couple of tatty curtains, this is like a massive bronze four-poster bed that the coffin is on. And it goes down into the ground. Oh, my Lord. Fabulous. So I decided that you've got a lifetime to grieve, but you've only got one day, an hour to celebrate. So it was going to be Don's party. It was going to be everything Don would have loved. So it reflected everything that he adored in his life. But I said, no family is going to speak. We're not having any of that. And he didn't want us to anyway. I said, I'm not going to speak. Nobody's going to speak. So I rounded up the usual suspects, as we call them. So Stephen Tomkinson, the actor, became the sort of MC for the whole thing. And he introduced the acts. So uh, Simon Weston was supposed to be coming up from Wales, but there was a huge storm and he fell off a stepladder. So he, he didn't turn up. So his understudy was the actor Julian Glover, who you'll know from Star Wars and Indiana Jones and all the rest of it. Um, and my husband was uh, in Fleet Street. So I got Timothy West to do the fabulous piece of Shakespeare that starts, Fear No More, The Heat of the Sun. And Tim got up and he started. And the whole place was, you know, Fleet Street and Rugby and Glyndebourne and, you know, it was fabulous. And Tim got up and he said, Fear no more the heat of the sun or the express or the mail or the mirror. And the place just erupted. <laughs> So we had all that, and then, uh, and, um, then my dear friend Wayne, Welsh Wayne, used to talk about the rugby, international rugby with him every week. Um, so Wayne gets up all in his, you know, black, very, very Welsh, gets up in his black court, and he says, uh, right, he says, every week, Don and I would talk about um, the rugby, and, uh, of course, in the 48 times that Wales played Scotland, Wales won 36 matches. And he turned and looked at the coffin and went, no, he's definitely dead. <laughs> and then he took his coat off and he was wearing a full Wales rugby strip. Oh, wow. And so he, he did his bit. Then Maggie, the rugby coach for the Southwark Tigers, got up and talked about how he was the kicking coach. And the kids, when he died, they said, oh, they said, is that the Scots bloke who always swears at us? <laughs> you know, so there was there was that. Then Peter Straker, great, great rock singer, started in Hair. He got up and he'd only rehearsed it once with no microphone with Stefan Bednarczyk, who was playing the piano. And he sang the Jacques Brel song, the, the Carousel, and it gets faster. And, and he started and this black guy with a, uh, with a ponytail gets up and starts to sing very slowly. And everybody's looking at each other and going, where's this going? Yeah. And it took off and it gets, and a carousel, and it gets faster and faster and faster. And he finished it. I have never seen a standing ovation at a funeral in a crematorium. He got one. 
And then I nearly went when Dame Helena Kennedy, Baroness Helena Kennedy, got up. And she's from Glasgow, and she and her husband, great friends of ours. And uh, Don was Scots as well, and she stood up and talked about the love that we had for each other. I could have slapped her because I was doing very well to then, but I got through it. And then three fabulous opera singers sang Soave Silvento from Cosi Van Tutte, which we had had at our wedding. Uh, when we got ma married, we got married on the the, um, the veranda of the kid family home in Barbados, Holder's Plantation. And we had three opera singers who sang Soave Silvento then. And these three sang it at his funeral. It was exquisite. And then at the end, I choreographed it. So his sister, who was on one side of the aisle, and I would lead the audience out to the whole of Murrayfield singing Flower of Scotland. Anyway, his sister and I got outside the crematorium. We were on our own. The entire congregation stayed and sung Flower of Scotland. But before that happened, the very best, Roy, Gr oh, sorry, Piers Morgan read Don's copy that he'd filed from Islamabad. And the then editor of his paper was more showbiz orientated and had cut Don's 1,500 words, 2,000 words nearly, I think, down to half of page 38. Don't get me started on that. I've written a play about it and a film, so. But anyway, so Piers read the whole of his copy at the funeral. And then at the end of it, Don had gone out to see a man who was on death row there. And we got involved in, in trying to get him out. And at the end of it, Piers said, and Mirza Tahir Hussein is here today. And everybody started to applaud and Tahir stood up with an arm full of stargazing lilies, which were Don's favourite flowers. And everybody cheered him, and fabulous. Then at the end, Roy Greenslade, who had also been one of Don's editors, stood up and said, there's a tradition in Fleet Street that when somebody has been great, and it started virtually with Caxton, they are banged out of the paper. And by banging out, everybody stands up and they bang on their desks and it gets to and it gets more and more and more and you're banged out of the building and it's a way of saying you are the creme de la creme and Roy said and Nicola has asked us to bang Don out and it started in the crematorium everybody started banging 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 and I banged on the coffin and then it went down and down and down to Flower of Scotland and the banging and the banging and the bang it was phenomenal. Uh, we were going to take it on tour, but some of the actors weren't available. It was a shame. And then we all went to his local pub and I put about £1,500 behind the bar and we had a fantastic evening. Uh, oh, sorry, forgot the cream of it. Right at the beginning, his two nephews and two friends from the rugby club carried the coffin in with Alistair Campbell in full Highland gear playing the pipes led the, the coffin on and then the the after party as we called it Alistair said to me I didn't like to ask him to play but he came up to me and he said I'll play if you'll dance and I danced reels at my husband's funeral now that was a funeral that was Don Mackay's party and the next day on the breakfast telly show Piers and the, uh, was saying I've never ever been to a funeral like it. it was amazing it was fabulous we got reviews for a funeral who knew you crammed it into that one hour. Well, actually, we overran a bit. But luckily, the funeral before had overrun. 
because um, uh, Air Vice Marshal David Henderson, who Don had met in Gulf War One, I'd said to him, look, I've hired a 52-seater coach with a laboratory, because I know my demographic, to meet everybody at West Dulwich Station. So anybody that wants to, you know, have a lift to the the, uh, the the crematorium, get on there. And I said to David, could you be in charge? Could you be, you know, Air Vice Marshal? He knows what he's doing, doesn't he? So I'm sitting in the, in the funeral car behind the hearse. And I'm going, flipping heck, Dawn's never travelled this slowly in his life because he was a bit of a speed demon. Anyway, my phone rings and I pick it up. I said, Hello. he said, it's David here. I said, oh, hello, David. I said, we're just coming into the uh, to the grounds of the crematorium. He said, ah, he said, slight problem. I said, what? He said, well, you know, I, you know, I'm quite good at navigating. I said, yeah. He said, well, I kept telling the coach driver, I think we're going the wrong way. I said, what's happened? He said, we're in the wrong cemetery. <laughs> they were the other side of South London. I said, it's all right. The funeral in front of us is overrun. So eventually, and luckily, as I say, there was a loo on board that coach. Otherwise, I think they'd have had to stop on the way. So it was the most glorious day. Oh, and I've got a DVD of it. What I was struck by there as well was not just the celebration of Don's life and everything that was important to him in his life, but also the celebration of you and him as well and your relationship and that bringing the music from your wedding into that as well um, is, yeah, it's really lovely, Nicola. Well, we didn't we didn't make the big point about that. I mean, we didn't say anything about it. It's so obvious Elbento is rather lovely. But what's quite extraordinary is I noticed that the mezzo during that, I mean, they sang it so beautifully. And the mezzo was obviously very visibly moved, and I knew she didn't know Don. Anyway, after the funeral, a few days after the funeral, I got an email from her, and it turned out that when she was young and struggling, She'd written to me when I was, I think I was doing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at the Palladium, I can't remember, but she'd written to me and asked for advice. And apparently, I'd been nice to her. I'd replied or something or other. And she was absolutely determined she was going to do Don's funeral to thank me, you know, as oh, a, a little wonderful. bit of payback. Yeah. yeah. So that was lovely. Whether you're hosting a sports day, a garden party or a tea party, celebrate summer in support of Marie Curie this year. By fundraising for Marie Curie, you can help our nurses provide care and compassion to people living with any terminal illness and emotional support to their families too. So let's get out there and raise money while the sun shines. Search Marie Curie Celebrate Summer to sign up today. Can we talk a bit about your experience of bereavement after Don's death? I know you've had many other significant losses in your life, but after Don's death and your experience of grief, can you talk a bit about that? And maybe maybe for people listening who might be grieving themselves now, what helped? Uh, I don't call it grief. Um. You never, ever get used to the idea that there's only a shell of you left. You don't care about anything. Uh, you know, you, nothing, it's, it's food without salt. It's life without colour. Now, entirely, if you have a family, um, then you have, you know, you know like a helium balloon. You've got anchors that are keeping you on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't have anything to keep me on the ground. I don't have to stay for anything. So I, I, I don't know because I don't I I don't experience I've never experienced it in the way that it's supposed to be. You know these stages of grief. They've made no sense to me. My only thing is that uh, I miss him. That's all. Um, I don't have any words of wisdom because everybody's grief is totally different or everybody's way of experiencing their loss is totally different depending on their relationship. Now, if you've had, a, I don't know, a, you know, a 50, 60 year old marriage, a friend, we were together for 31 years, but a friend of mine, Sir Sidney Samuelson and his wife, Lady Dot, they've been together for something like 70 years. And she very sadly died. And I thought when she died, he's he's not going to last much longer. And of course he didn't. Mm -hmm. He went within six months. And I think that's often the way. I think if I had been, you know, Don only died when he was 62, 60. So anyway, whatever he was. Um, but if he'd been 92 and I'd been in my 80s, I'd have gone with him. And when Prince Philip died, I thought the Queen won't be far behind. But being that much younger, being 20 or 30 years younger, it's different because the body doesn't give up that easily. You have a support network around you and no, ever since no, John's no, 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 death. No. I, don't, you, I don't do support networks. I don't you do don't all talk that. about no. it? Yes, I talk about it all the time. But okay. that's, it's not a therapy. I don't lean on people for support. A friend in need is a bloody nuisance, as the old saying goes. I'm not in need. There isn't anybody or anything that can fill the hole that Don left. So, you know, I do things, I go about my life, but I'm not depressed. This is just the reality, which you'd recognize much more easily if I were in my 90s. But then again, I have to say, I have never thought there was a point to life. I've always thought it was an entirely pointless exercise. We go around making noise against the silence. You know, when you hear, Near young drivers out there, you know, and they've got the boo, boo, boo in, the, in their, their, you know, that they've fixed up their engines to backfire. And they've got the, the music going on. And you just think, why are you so afraid of the silence? Because that's all there is. And when Dawn came along, I said, no, no, don't want to get married. I don't want any of it. And then one day I thought, oh, all right, I'll give it a try. I adored being married to him. And we grew together like the bindweed and the honeysuckle. My next question was going to be whether or not you thought about your own death. And you've talked a bit about that. Um, can I ask practically? Um, so this is um, something we talk about for people listening who might be caring for somebody right now who's living with a terminal illness and uh, nearing death and dying. Um about whether you've made any practical plans for when you die, so such as writing a will, writing down your funeral wishes, anything oh, like yeah. that? Oh, yes. I think it's only fair to people to make sure that you make it as, as hassle-free as possible, particularly with a will. Oh, <laughs> my, friend, my dear friend Kim, uh, she's a, she used to be a bit of a hoarder. During COVID, she had a good old clear-out, but before COVID, her sister came in, walked into her house and went, Oh, for God's sake, don't die. So this idea of clearing out everything. But then again, if you've got enough money to leave them a bit extra to clear the stuff, you know, it, just regard it as a job. Um, yes, definitely write a will. 
uh, write your funeral wishes, or if you don't want a funeral, particularly, um, say yeah, just say what you want, what you'd like. Don't. Uh, there's nothing to be scared of. As I say, dying is different from death. The ways of dying, yes, there are some pretty. I mean, my my brother-in-law had uh, esophageal cancer, and the bravery of the man was off the scale. An extraordinary, extraordinary bravery. I'm not sure I could do that. I mean, the only reason that I haven't been to Switzerland is that I hate Switzerland. I mean, if they opened a branch in the Maldives, I'd have gone tomorrow, <laughs> or maybe even the Canary Islands. That'd be handy. So you know whether you want to be buried or cremated, and oh, Don and I are going to be—we're going to have a, 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 an ash mixing party where we take his ashes and my ashes, mix them together, and then the little tiny island that we uh, always went to every year. Well, well we, we met in '86, and the first time we went there was '88, and we went every single year. And then when he died, I took his ashes back and took them around all the bars, and you know everybody brought him a drink put his ashes on the table and everybody bought him a drink. It was just fabulous. Um, uh, yeah, we're going to be mixed together and then scattered in the island. It'll be lovely because it's quite windy around there, so we should get around the entire island. <laughs> That's a really lovely idea, actually. I have heard of that. I've heard of that before when people will mix ashes and put them in a place that's significant, important, uh, you know, to them. Yeah. Um, it's really nice. Um just a couple of things left before we finish. If there's anybody listening who is grieving at the moment and is grieving now, is there any sort of words of advice or something you'd want to share? I don't know because it's you know when people say, "Oh, you know, it'll get it'll this will happen, this will happen." It's absolute rubbish. Each person experiences it totally differently. But what I would say that if you have ashes, then cuddle them, take them to bed. See, Shakespeare says, love is not love, which alters where alteration finds. Now, the person that you've loved for the last 31 years has altered. It doesn't alter your love for them. I'm still as much in love with my husband as I was 25 years ago. Um, I still love him. I can love him better now. Not more, but I can love him better because I'm not every day thinking he's going to die. Now, the thing about being bereaved when you're very young is that you drive with the brakes on emotionally because you're always going, going to die. So to make that commitment, I mean, there, there, are, there are two things which I find quite interesting is that people who've been bereaved young quite often will be, uh, won't necessarily sleep around but won't put all their emotional legs into the most important basket. So the more that their partner and their children or whatever it is mean to them, the less committed they'll appear to be. And it's self-protection. That's all it is. And then again, you've got a case like, yeah, well, I, I will because it, he's getting an enormously bad press and I think possibly I can see why. Prince Harry's behaviour of anger. He was a young lad who lost his mother, who he worshipped and idolised, as one does, especially with a beautiful young mother like she was. But what she'd done was she'd gone off with a bloke and she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Now, there is no way that Prince Harry can say to his mother, I hate you for that. 
what you did to me and what you did to my brother, because that would imply that you hate the person. You don't. That person did something that hurt you beyond belief. But when you conflate a piece of behaviour with the person themselves when you're a child, it's unbelievably difficult. So this young man, he's not even a young man anymore, he's 40, he's angry with everybody except the one person that if he could just turn around and say, I wish you hadn't gone on that holiday, I wish you hadn't gone to Paris, but all those things that a young mind would have made into a knotted ball so that, and then this, this other thing, as I say, of you know being bereaved young, not putting all your eggs in one basket. So it's very, very complicated. So I can't say to somebody, oh, well, I can help you here because of this, because I don't know what your experience of death was before that. So I just say, you know, it doesn't get any better. You just get used to it. Sometimes you don't get used to it. Sometimes it's worse than others. I don't know. I don't know what your experience is going to be. But don't blame the person who died. I think for me, there's a message in there about talking about what you're experiencing, talking about your feelings, because you're describing, um, you know, people focusing emotions in the wrong way or towards yeah. the wrong people. But actually that thing of just talking about how you're feeling and or just talking about the person who's died, you know, even even reminiscing, being with people who knew them and storytelling, all that stuff can be really helpful in, 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 in where to focus those emotions and those experiences in the, in, in the right way. I think you're absolutely right. But this, this sort of, you know, talking about, well, I mean, I talk about Don every day, photographs of her every, every, everywhere. I mean, you know, and I, these ashes are, are, you know, permanent part of me. But I think more than just talking about the person, if you find that you have an unpicked open knot of emotions towards them, all through your own behaviour, I think you have to keep opening the drawer, poking it, and once it stops hurting, you see, as an actor, I can use those experiences, but only after they have the sting has gone out of them. And to get the sting out of them, you have to unpick the knot. And the only person who can do it is you. Now, you can go to therapy till the cows come home and all the rest of it. But, I mean, my favourite word is rigour. You have to be rigorous with yourself, with your behaviour. Why do you behave the way you do? Every single thing that you do is a choice, right? I can choose to say, oh, oh, that's a lovely color blue on you. It brings your eyes out. Or I can go, oh, that was a choice, wasn't it? Mm. And I can make you feel bad. Now, some people do that because it is really important to them to put you in your place for them. But they haven't analyzed why it is they're doing that. So when you're big enough and ugly enough, like I am, and somebody comes into your dressing room and tries to belittle you by not saying anything or, or just sort of sneering, then you just have to go, listen, mate, you bend down and you pick up a very, very heavy thing and you go like this, you go, oh, excuse me, sorry, um, this is your bucket of shit, it's not mine. And you just hand it over. And in fact, that's really, really useful when anybody does anything to you that you're, that you're internalizing and getting really upset about. Just, this is your bucket of shit, it's not mine. And physically pick it up. Pick up that heavy weight and hand it over because it does you a power of good. The other thing is getting angry. That is really good. But make sure that it flares and goes out. 
It's not like that. You know those um, peat bog fires where they can appear to have gone out for months and then they suddenly flare up somewhere else because the spark is underneath. No, go on, have a good old, you know, have a good old rant. Get it out. But don't have, don't have a clogged up canal inside you. Make sure all your waterways are open and flowing. And have a look in those little back corners and see if there's a little bit of uh, stagnant water there. Unblock it. Get rid. Not good. Mm. Thank you. And my last question. Um... No, I won't marry you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know I'm a rich widow, but, you know, get out of here. Is how has it been today being on the Marie Curie couch and having this conversation? It's been very nice indeed. I And I'm hoping that my kitchen floor has dried. Brilliant. Because I timed it to wash the kitchen floor, because I've got a bit, like I told you at the beginning, I washed the kitchen floor and I thought, oh, by the time I've done this, it will have dried. So you've come in very handy. Thank you very much. Nicola McAuliffe, thank you for joining me today on the Marie Curie Couch and for sharing some of Don's story and yours. And yeah, lovely to meet you. It's been a delight. Thank you. I can bring his scatter tube down and I, it can be a. I should have had him here all the time. Oh, we'll have to do it again. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks very <laughs> thank much. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Content. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.